All right, let's go ahead and pray. We're going to jump into this. I'm going to move at a fast clip today. I'm going to move at a fast clip today because we're going to get into uh, pushing back against uh, the, the, the view of our Reformed, Pado-Baptistic brothers and sisters. So I want to cover a lot of ground. I want to also have this as kind of a repository for people to look back to. So I'm going to move quickly. I have the notes set. Um, look back to this. I'll send you the notes once they're finished up. Uh, and uh, so you can have that as a reference. But let's pray, and then we will get into it. Father, we're thankful to come to these texts again, to study these things again, how you've worked through your people um, as redemptive history has progressed. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this is the ground we have covered so far. Uh, we first presented the arguments for what I'm just going to call covenantal infant baptism because I'm tired of saying Reformed pedo baptism. Um, covenantal infant baptism, I don't know if it's one less syllable or it just sounds more satisfying. That's what we're going with. Um, we presented that case. Then we presented the case for credo baptism or believers only baptism. And we kind of got right up to this point. We ended last time with believers only baptism, an argument for, uh, excuse me, from the idea of baptism as commitment, that there is an idea of commitment and followership contained in baptism. I wanted to clarify, and I have it up here, that though baptism symbolizes cleansing, death to sin, and resurrection union with Christ, it also plays an instrumental role in the conversion discipleship process, marking out those who have been baptized as followers of the person into whom they were baptized, John the Baptist, Jesus. I wanted to add one more argument to this, to this idea that baptism uh, entails followership from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I, want you, I don't know how it could get much more clear than this. When Paul is talking to a divided church who is saying, you know, hey, I follow this person, I follow this person, it's interesting what he says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says he appeals to them that there'll be no divisions. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's been quarreling. Okay, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. Or I follow Apollos. Or I follow Cephas. Or I follow Christ. So he's talking about following different people. And then he asks some rhetorical questions here. Is Christ divided? Obviously not. He's not divided. Was Paul crucified for you? answer. Obviously not. And then he asks a third question, were you baptized into the name of Paul? Obviously not. You were not baptized into the name of Paul. The reason he is saying this is because he's saying no one is following me or Cephas or Apollos. Everyone is following Jesus. Okay? So that's why he says you weren't, you're not following me. You weren't baptized into me. Baptism denotes or contains the idea of commitment or followership, which might be a made-up word. D.A. Carson says it well, baptism is a sign of both entrance into the Messiah's covenant community and of pledged submission to his lordship. So there you have it. We have the case for believers-only baptism, an argument from fulfillment leading to discontinuity, an argument from explicit New Testament instances and examples an argument from baptism as commitment. Now, the, you remember our Presbyterian friends um, are going to want to say that baptism replaces circumcision. Uh, the covenantal Baptist says, mm, 
that's just a, does, does baptism replace circumcision? That is a very ambiguous and unhelpful question, as we're going to see. Baptism may replace circumcision in some superficial sense, but it is not identical in meaning or function, making the question a confusing one. Okay? And we're gonna, that's going to be teased out. We will tease that out together. Okay? Any questions about that particular view... Uh, the, the, the Baptist view of a new covenant that is pure, that is not mixed, it doesn't contain believers and unbelievers like the old covenant, but according to Jeremiah 31, everyone knows God has the law written on their hearts and are covenant keepers, and therefore those who are a part of the covenant to receive the sign are those who are believers. That's where you get believers only baptism. Okay? Any questions about kind of the Baptist, the covenantal Baptist view there? Okay, well, now it is time to turn to what a lot of people have been waiting for, the critique of covenantal infant baptism, okay? And like I said, I'm going to move at a, at a fairly fast clip here, uh, but it, it, it's going to be recorded, and you can have the notes later. You have, to, you have to start critiquing covenantal infant baptism with the idea of just critiquing covenant theology in general and confronting the resulting hermeneutical errors, the covenant of grace, the so-called covenant of grace that begins in Genesis 3.15, nowhere so named in Scripture, uh, happens to flatten out and it collapses true and meaningful distinctions between the covenants as the covenants actually progress in history. Um, to, to understand all the biblical covenants to be the same in substance but only different in an administration because they are in this supra-covenant of grace results in Christianizing the Old Testament and Judaizing the New Testament. It results in Christianizing the Old Testament and Judaizing the New Testament. Let me give you an example. In Christianizing the Old Testament, because it's all the same, it's all really the same, it's all this one spiritual continuum, Pado-Baptists will also res often restrict the significance of circumcision to purely spiritual promises. Okay? Um, spiritual promises and blessing while neglecting any of the national or really significant, maybe not totally neglecting, but significantly downplaying any of the national or geographical significance. For example, the Abrahamic covenant, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant was what? Circumcision. Yeah, excellent. Yes, thank you. Somebody come through. Okay, and the, the, the sign that sealed it was circumcision. But But the Abrahamic covenant included promises of physical progeny, of, of descendants, of physical offspring. It included the promise of the land of Canaan. It included the promise, Genesis 17, 6, that of kings that would come. Okay? Baptism nowhere signifies any of those things. Okay? Baptism does not signify any of those things, uh, which, is, which is why... Uh, Baptists would say there's a very meaningful difference between baptism and circumcision. They simply do not, sim they do not symbolize the same thing because the covenants that they represent uh, entail different things. Okay, That would be an example. Another example uh, is this spiritualizing the old covenant here is that one could truly enjoy the covenant blessings in Old Testament Israel provided they live an outwardly moral life in conformity with the laws of the camp 
Maybe they didn't fear Yahweh in the heart, but if they went along with things, they were still delivered out of Egypt, and they still were fed by manna in the wilderness, and they still crossed into the promised land. And when, when the nation as a whole repented, they, were, they got the benefit of being delivered by the judges as well. They truly enjoyed the milk and honey of the promised land and on and on in times of overall faithfulness. Okay, uh, th this is a, going to be an example that there is going to get pushed forward into the New Testament. It's the, the, the idea that there is, this, there is a mixture of folks that can both genuinely claim to be in the covenant is oftentimes, not all the time, downplayed by certain stripes of, our, of Presbyterians because there is a debate about whether the covenant of grace is made with only the elect or elect and their believing children. It's an in-house dispute. Here's a great example. I have a quote from John Murray. This is exactly what I mean when I say that because of this hermeneutical error, you get this downplaying uh, of any kind of the physical and national elements, and it spiritualizes, it kind of Christianizes the Old Testament. He says, with reference to circumcision, it must be fully appreciated that it was not essentially or primarily the sign of family or racial or national identity. Any significance which circumcision possessed along the line of national identity or privilege was secondary and derived. Its primary and essential significance was that it was the sign and seal of the highest and richest spiritual blessing which God bestows upon men. Okay? So again, the, the, the idea is to say, look at these particular promises, look at this covenant. Really, it's all, it, what, what, what is fundamental and what matters and why it's all substantively the same is because it is all this internal uh, spiritual phenomenon that is at stake and these things are ancillary, they are uh, superficial. They are, uh, and, and what, what it would be called now is they are spiritualizing the Old Testament or over-spiritualizing the Old Testament to make it all fit together under one umbrella. What about Judaizing the New Testament as a result of this error? Pado-Baptists have to import Old Testament concepts like covenantal holiness, um, external members of the covenant, external union to God, covenant children, uh, into the New Testament, even those, those, those particular distinctions are totally foreign to the pages of the New Testament. You won't find them anywhere. Why? doesn't matter. It's still part of the covenant of grace. Remember, strong, strong continuity is just default. It's just assumed. You don't need it to say that. Those are categories we show up with on the pages of the New Testament, says the Pado Baptist, uh, just like we had in the Old Testament. And we're using, we'll be using the same tools and the same categories here. Um, an example of this would be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 12 through 14, <clears throat> that we looked at, where <clears throat> the unbelieving spouse is made holy by the believing spouse and the children as well. There, the Pado-Baptistic uh, Pado interpretation of that, the covenantal interpretation of that uh, has to import this idea of covenantal holiness, this covenantal holiness. It doesn't mean that the spouse is saved. It doesn't mean that the child is saved. What it means is that they are uh, in the covenant. They're, they, are, they are set apart as, the as part of the corporate people of God, <clears throat> directly a concept that just comes directly out of an old covenant framework. Or, for example, how our Presbyterian brothers and sisters tend to explain the warning passages in the books 
well, the warning passages, I would say in general, but particularly the five so-called warning passages in the book of Hebrews. So some of you are familiar with Hebrews 6, particularly 4 through 6, uh, where it appears you have, you know, for he who has tasted all these things that make them describe, it describes them certain like a believer who falls away. It's impossible to restore them to repentance. Um, they're going to take the Hebrews 10, 29, that he has trampled underfoot the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And they're just going to say, listen, all of these examples are of people that, are, that truly were in something and truly fell away. Oh, no, no, no. They didn't fall away from salvation. They just fell out of the, this is just someone falling out of the covenant. The new covenant is a mixed covenant, just like the old covenant. That's the reason they're saying there are warnings to people in the covenant because you genuinely can fall out of the covenant. Now, the elect never will, but there are people who aren't Christian, who aren't elect, who are in the covenant. And so the Presbyterian understanding of the warning passages, why would you warn people who are in the covenant, okay, and say things like don't fall away, is say, well, because you can fall out of the covenant. The covenant clearly is not a pure covenant. <clears throat> they have, but again, they ha that has to be imported from the Old Testament to give that kind of explanation for those Hebrews passages. You have to have that conceptual tool and assume that's legitimate to even use that as an explanation. That's what I mean by Judaizing the New Testament. It takes something as distinct that we are going to argue from the Old Testament the idea of a mixed covenant community imports it into the New Testament and then uses it to explain these passages. And the Reformed, the Reformed Baptist cries foul, penalty flag, okay? Not how it works. So the covenantal Baptist rejects this supra-covenant of grace as an umbrella for redemptive history uh, in favor of a foundational promise, Genesis 3.15, that the, there, is a, there is a seed from the woman that's going to crush the serpent. That's the promise. Nowhere does it say anything about a, co a covenant there. It's a promise that's teased out in covenants, plural. <clears throat> um, it's teased out in covenants that are modified as the biblical narrative moves forward. So while covenant theology, the Presbyterian Reformed Paedo-Baptistic covenant theology, articulates a clean and elegant structure as it kind of hovers over the text of Scripture, sounds really good and clean in the air. But when you kind of press it down on the actual text and how things develop over the redemptive history, uh, it's too uniform. It doesn't fit the contours, okay? The Noahic covenant, for example, the covenant with Noah, has no promise of redemption whatsoever. That seems to me to be a substantive difference. It is a covenant of preservation. It allows the promise to take place, and so certainly it fits in, but it doesn't offer any redemption. It offers preservation of the created order. Um, similarly, it's not a surprise to observe an in-house struggle between our Presbyterian friends about how the Mosaic Covenant exactly fits into the covenant of grace. Nor is it a surprise to learn that there's a discussion amongst our Paedo-Baptist friends about the precise nature of who the covenant of grace is made with. Is it made with elect or elect in their children? Nor is it surprising to look over and see in-house discussions about, well, the covenant of grace officially starts at Genesis 3.15, but, it, it, but, uh, but, but then it properly is ratified in Genesis 12.15 and 17 with Abraham, which the Baptists say, well, hold on, wait, wait, that sounds just like the Abrahamic covenant at that point. 
Why, why, why is the covenant of grace get, when, when does the covenant of grace get kicked off here? Can we just be clear about that? The, the Baptist says, no, what starts is here is a promise. God makes a covenant with Noah. Then he makes a covenant with Abraham. And all of these things are advancing the promise. They're not all part of the same covenant, supra overarching covenant. And so while the theological motifs of promise and covenant are related, or of promise and covenant are related, they are distinct. A promise is a future guarantee of something with the covenant being a particular arrangement between parties. In Scripture, we see prominent promises of covenants and covenants that include promises, but nevertheless, it's important that we keep the two categories distinct. Okay, You can have a covenant that is promised to come, and you can have a covenant that grounds future promises, but they aren't identical things. Promise and covenant are not identical theological motifs in Scripture, although they are quickly related, or quickly related, closely related, excuse me. Okay, any questions about that before I move into what like three or four people have asked? The Presbyterian attempts to, to, un, to tease out Jeremiah 31. Yes. And their children. Yeah, elect and their children. Just and their children. Because you didn't have to be a believing child in the Old Covenant. You just got the sign. If you were a male. Always have to clarify that. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a question of uh, an in-house debate. Is it made with the elect or the elect and their believing children? Westminster Confession. uh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I was looking at you. That's why I said that. If I said that, I, I apologize. There's a question of whether the covenant of grace is made only with the elect uh, or the elect and their children. Okay? Um, And there are different, yeah, there are certainly uh, Reformed confessions and uh, Reformers who have different views on that. But essentially, the majority view, I think, I think, majority view, the number one, the, the mitigating view against the only elect is, listen, it has to be made with their children as well because they're the proper objects of the covenant curses if they disobey. So if they're not part of the covenant, why do they suffer the covenant curses for disobedience? It's like it has to be the covenant of grace includes, it seems to include both parents and children, but in this covenant there are consequences for faithlessness. Uh, but that's, again, that's an in-house dispute we're not going to dive into that one. That's an over. That's a look over the fence at our our friends and say, hmm, maybe some of this is because the whole concept is a little bit uh, creates some has a lot of tension within it that can't be resolved, perhaps. Okay, Jeremiah thirty-one, by all accounts, stands as the text that our Presbyterian friends have to do business with. It is admitted on all accounts that if the new covenant contains only believers. All and only believers, the case for giving the covenant sign, baptism to infants, just disintegrates. It disappears. Okay, It's not a mixed covenant. Everyone in the covenant is a covenant keeper, knows God. Turn with me to Jeremiah 31 just so you can have that in front of you as we look at this. I'm going to give you three attempts, three paedo-baptistic efforts to do business with Jeremiah 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, where I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts, 
I'll be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Okay, so what our Presbyterian friends must struggle to do is ask the question, and, and you succinctly asked it like this, what is new about the new covenant? What precisely is new about the new covenant? Baptists give a very straightforward answer based off Jeremiah 31 and the way it is understood, the inauguration of the new covenant teased out in the New Testament. The New Testament has come. That unlike the old covenant where you had people who were covenant breakers, who did not actually love God, but were still a part of the covenant community, the, uh, still part of the covenant people, who still enjoy the corporate blessings and the curses, in the new covenant that's coming, everyone knows God. Everyone has their law written on their heart. No one is a covenant breaker. They shall all know me from the least to the greatest. Okay, if that's the case, again, then we don't have, you don't, you don't, you know, you understand if you have that, you don't have that explanation of people falling out of the covenant. If you're a Presbyterian, because people can't fall out of the covenant if the only people who are in the covenant are elect. You've got to have some unbelievers in the covenant to go to Hebrews and say, oh, what this is is someone falling out of the new covenant. Okay, so it, 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 they have to do business with this text. First effort, how can we make this not mean that the new covenant as we experience it now is a believers only covenant? <clears throat> First, Jeremiah 31 describes um, the faithful of all kinds within the covenant to come and therefore is not describing a different covenant makeup from the current situation. People of all classes and kinds within the covenant has, have always known God, been faithful, and had the law on their hearts. So down here in the last verse, excuse me, uh, yeah, last verse, verse 34, they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, saying, listen, this is referring to all kinds of people. This is not the newness part. All kinds of people within Israel, all classes of people within Israel have always known God. For example, in Genesis 11:9, in the account of delivering Lot, it says, And they struck with blindness, these angels, the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, least and greatest, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. The idea is they didn't make any distinction. They were where they were blinding. Um, all kinds of people. Uh, They're blinding all kinds of people. People without, all kinds of people without distinction. Deuteronomy 1.17, you shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. Okay? You shall not, intim you should not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. In the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me and I'll hear it. You shall judge, you shall hear the small and the great. You should hear all kinds of people the same. Um, in Nineveh, in, in Jonah, Nineveh repents. It says the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. So uh, all, kinds of, all kinds of people, all stature, from the peasants to the, the most wealthy folks, they all repented. So the argument here is that this, the newness of the new covenant isn't that everyone without exception knows uh, God, uh, th this phrase does not denote that, okay? It, it means that all kinds of people within the covenant know God, which has always been the case. The newness has to be found somewhere else. Okay, objection number one. In context, whatever is going to happen with the least 
the least to the greatest is contrasted with what happened before, that they will no longer do something. They will no longer do something is the contrast with the least to the greatest knowing. So obviously that this is positioned in the passage as part of the newness. It's part of explains why no one will teach his brother. Look down with me at verse 34. No longer. So this is something that's no longer going to happen that was happening. Okay. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. For they shall all know me explains this new thing. Surely what explains the new thing isn't something that's the same. It doesn't even make sense. Here's this new thing that's happening. What explains it? The same things that have always been happening. No, it's clearly tied in with what he's trying to say is something new about the new covenant. Um, in fact, um, <clears throat> well, let me, let me just shift to the second objection. Um, we have to make a distinction between describing all categories of people and describing all people by categories. All people by categories. Um, in fact, look at his own, the own examples that this one author gives here. Let's look at Deuteronomy 1.17. Certainly, least to the greatest can mean all kinds of people without distinction. But look, just listen to Deuteronomy 1.17, where God tells Moses, you shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. Like, okay, do you think Moses could have walked away from that and understood that he could be unjust to some people so long as he was fair to one, at least one or two folks in each class? Surely that's not what Moses would have walked away saying. Surely what in the, con the, the context of the passage is what determines what least to greatest means, not simply the phrase. Surely you shall hear the small and the great alike means it's understood as a merism. That you should, which is giving the bookends of something, are two extremes. You should hear everyone impartially. That's what's trying to be communicated to Moses by the least to the great. Um, in fact, when you even when you look at his example of Jonah that he that this one author gives, the people repented from the least to the uh, uh, greatest of them. Let me just go over here real quick so you, I can read this to you. In Jonah chapter three. He doesn't continue reading the passage, or he doesn't continue quoting the passage. You certainly, it, you certainly do not get the idea that there was like uh, a holdout, a group of holdouts, or people sprinkled throughout the kingdom who didn't actually repent. Just certain people from every class of people within Nineveh, all categories of people. So he said they put on sackcloth from the least of them to the greatest. But listen, if you keep reading, does this give the indication that there were a bunch of holdouts? Um, and they just had representation from each category. The word reached the king. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. There's a divine decree made, announced to the city, right? By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, Taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way from the violence that is in his hands. So if you go on to read it, the least of the greatest, again, is being understood as a merism for everyone. Um, a, a contemporary merism, again, something like I searched high and low. Well, someone said, oh, but you didn't search in the middle. It's like that person would be misunderstanding how that works. Okay, I searched high and low. Um, uh, what about Psalm 139? 
You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You know my sitting down, my laying down, and my rising up. He's like, oh, but he doesn't know when I'm eating lunch. Okay, the idea is that uh, the idea is that certainly these are two categories of, of uh, two categories of time during a person's day. But the whole the, the 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 way it's used is to say God knows everything about me. And in fact, in Jeremiah 31, the all itself describes all people, but it describes them by categories. Um, within God's covenant people. This is the most ironic little point. In Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, well, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay, so in terms of the covenant people of God, um, described categorically, does that leave anyone out? No. It's, he's describing his covenant people in categories, those who live in the northern kingdom, identify with the northern kingdom, and those who live in the southern kingdom. But as a matter of fact, that's the whole covenant, that's the whole people of God. It's similar to saying um, Jews and Gentiles can both repent and believe the gospel. But guess what? That describes everyone in the whole world because everyone is either a Jew or a Gentile. Does that make sense? I'm describing all people in categories. I'm not just describing all kinds of categories of people. All right? So I think this is, it doesn't, this also does not, this interpretation also does not at all explain the, that they broke. It suggests that this covenant cannot be broke. All kinds of people in the old covenant broke the covenant as well. Right? So even if you were to grant that and say, oh, all kinds of people, but it says, not like the covenant that I made with their forefathers on that day, my covenant that they broke. Okay, so if at the very least in the new covenant, all kinds of people will not do the breaking. Not a very satisfactory attempt. I would say that it's the weakest attempt out of the three here. Presbyterian attempt number one, Jeremiah 31, trying to explain how this does not mean that everyone is in the covenant. The second one comes from Jeffrey Neal. Read this with me. The knowledge described in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, to be possessed by all members of the new covenant is not saving knowledge, is not saving knowledge, but a kind of knowledge that was formerly only had by the Levitical priesthood who were uniquely tasked with teaching the law and ordinances to the people. In the new covenant, the ceremonial and priestly laws are abolished, which means that people can teach and learn God's word without a priesthood. That is the promise of Jeremiah 31, according to Jeffrey Neal. This says they will all know me. No one will have to teach their brother. It's not saying that everyone will know God personally and intimately. It's not saying that everyone will be saved. It's saying that the method by which people will, that people had formerly learned of God, because the priesthood will be abolished, because Christ is now the great high priest, that method will not be enforced anymore. That's what it's saying. It's not saying that the covenant will be made up of pure people. Let me just point out objection number one. Nowhere in the passage whatsoever, in the new, nowhere in Jeremiah 31, whatsoever is the Levitical priesthood mentioned. Uh, the passage is directed to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And notice the teaching here, verse 34, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother. Okay? It doesn't say the, the priests, no longer will the priests teach the people. This is, an, this, is a, this is brother teaching brother. This is Israelite teaching Israelite, exhorting them to, in fact, 
know the Lord. It's not, it's not at all pictured as the something that the Levitical priesthood is doing. It's not addressed to the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priesthood does not even show up here. But second, verse 34, sure, the last part of the verse surely teases out, as, other pres- as our third view will admit, that the kind of knowledge here is saving knowledge. How is it qualified? They shall all know me from the least for the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's the manner in which they will know me. It teases it out in the passage itself. And so I have to say that uh, th- this seems to me like a someone trying to play... This is, this is a very novel little solution, it seems to me. Someone who's trying... It feels like someone trying to wriggle out. And I think that's exactly what it is. When you look at the passage, it, just, uh, it simply does not sustain that. Levitical priesthood is nowhere mentioned. And the kind of knowledge seems to be explicitly clarified as forgiveness of sins sins that are forgiveness of iniquity and sins that are not remembered, okay? So I think attempt number two to get out of the implication that the new covenant is a pure covenant fails. Attempt number three is probably, is, is the be- I think, the best effort by Richard Pratt, who I would say, I don't know how, I've heard that in personal conversations between Pratt and Jeffrey Neal, Pratt said he, he doesn't disagree with some of the things. But, but Richard Pratt explicitly believes that Jeremiah 31 does describe a pure covenant for the exact same reasons I just said. He's a Presbyterian who says, listen, Jeremiah 31, so there's a covenant coming where everyone knows God and everyone's a believer. You can't get out of it. But look at this. But he says that this is a covenant that is fulfilled in an already not yet manner. Okay, remember that paradigm from the New Testament, already not yet, that the kingdom has come, but it's not yet been consummated? So he's taking that paradigm, and he's applying that kingdom paradigm to the covenant. Here's what he says. Okay, the new covenant has been inaugurated, but it awaits consummation in the new heavens and new earth, in which everyone will know God. Okay, everyone will be faithful forever. The pure aspect of the new covenant is yet to come. So... Essentially, and this is a clarifying point, but also the first objection is, on Pratt's view, Jeremiah 31 is simply a promise of uh, a promise about the new heavens and new earth. It's a promise about what restoration is going to look like after exile and the end of all things. It doesn't, it, that's, that's, it's just like many, many of the other prophets. That's what he's saying. He said, this, is, this picture right here in Jeremiah 31 is total fool renewal and restoration. One of, but, but the question is, everyone, this isn't new. Everyone's already expecting this. This seems to be positioned. The way it is, the, way it, the, the language with which it is couched, it seems to suggest that this is something that's actually adding to the people's information. Jews already expected, for example, Hosea 3.5, that, that, uh, that the God's people would come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. I mean, it was just known. Was there really a Jew thinking that in the restoration of all things, that there was going to be a bunch of covenant breakers and God-haters? No, I mean, they already knew that. That was already part of the hope. So one question is like, what does this add? For Pratt, it just seems that this is just one more prophecy about, one more restoration prophecy. We go through the book of the 12 and find dozens of examples. This is just an example here, and it happens to be called, and he calls it, and he puts the label on it, the new covenant. But let me give the more serious objection. Um, is that 
it, it, it seems like the constitution of the new covenant here being pure is not simply a blessing of it, but it's actually part of the nature of it, the covenant itself. Let me give you an example. Um, H2O is the fundamental nature of water. It's not a benefit of water, right? H2O is the core of what, what's the structure itself of water. And, and that's what it seems to be. The structure here in Jeremiah 31 makes it new. The structure is going to be different. The structure, what makes it new, its essential foundational core is going to be different. But if that's so, it can only come all at once or not at all. For the same reason that I can't bring someone water in any meaningful way by bringing them um, hydrogen in a cup. And saying, here, I've truly brought it to you. The oxygen's coming later. That's not bringing anything truly. That's not truly bringing water in any meaningful sense whatsoever. Because once you break it down, you can't break down the essential nature of what something is. It's not a blessing that can be divided up. It's the core of, of what it is. Instead, what I'm suggesting, it is the two-act kingdom of God that plays out on the fully present stage of the new covenant. Okay, the only reason the first stage of the kingdom of God could have come is because the new covenant is fully there. That's why forgiveness of sins is possible. Okay, Pratt runs into his own problems. He says, listen to what he says here. We can have confidence that after Christ returns in glory, everyone in the new creation will have the law of God written on his or her heart. He says, you can't get out of that looking at Jeremiah 31. Okay, but at the present time, however... This expectation is only partially fulfilled. So for Pratt, we have the law partially written on our hearts, but we have the full forgiveness of sins. How does that work? How does that work? How do you get to figure out uh, you, when Pratt is asked, well, how do you, why think that the pure part is yet to come? What does he appeal to? All of the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. We know that the covenant isn't pure. Look at all these warnings to people in the covenant who can fall out of it. Okay? So clearly that part is yet to come. That's how it works. So we're going to get to the warning passages, uh, uh, the mixed covenant passages in a bit. But that is his effort, okay? That is his effort, but because the, the core of the new covenant is that structure, it simply does not even make, it's, it's, it's conceptually incoherent uh, that it come uh, 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 um, in two stages. Pratt really doesn't give us the already not yet paradigm. He gives us the kind of not really. He, seriously, he gives us kind of not really. Uh, in the case of the kingdom coming already not yet, it's true that Christ is reigning, truly. But he is not fully reigning like he will when he comes in the consummation of all things. It is true that you have, have eternal life, but you will die. But even though you die, you will yet live. You, but you will not live fully like you will when you have a glorified resurrection body that we're going to hear about today in the sermon. The, 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 the promises of the kingdom inaugurated, consummated. The covenant, which is the arrangement, though, has to be there for the kingdom to have come at all. There isn't forgiveness of sins if Christ isn't a better high priest and the blood of bulls and goats have been done away with and all the rest of it. Okay, So I simply think it is a cute move. Uh, it is trying to take a paradigm that belongs really to theology of the kingdom, the already not yet, and apply it to covenant. By the way, I mean, I would suggest that if you look back at biblical covenants, where is the, I mean, in, in terms of covenant, um, 
already not yet just doesn't show up. Already not yet. I think you can make a case, for the, even though the, the, the phrase kingdom of God does not show up in the Old Testament, you can find already not yet um, precursors in the, Old, in the Old Testament. Not so with a covenant, though. The covenants come, they're there, or they're promised to come. The already not yet paradigm applies to the kingdom. It goes on the stage of the covenant. Okay, so I've got five minutes left. We are going to turn to, again, I'm moving at a fast clip here. I understand. We're going to respond to some of these mixed covenant proof texts. Because I tell you what, these just, people just always go back to this when you read the literature. Always, always, always going back to the five warning passages in the book of Hebrews and asking the question, well, obviously the new covenant is not pure. We can take that for granted because people are being warned who are in the covenant and we see people falling away from the covenant. So Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 is a classic example. Uh, in Hebrews 6, let me get over here so I can read it. Oh, whoops. <laughs> All right. For it is impossible in the case of those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and in the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, when you have heard this passage, generally it's saying, oh my goodness, does this believe that a believer can lose their salvation? But again, our Presbyterian friends, oh no, they don't have to say that. You know what this describes? It describes someone who was in the covenant, truly. They were in, just like the moral person who wasn't, didn't fear Yahweh in the old covenant. They were in, they experienced some of the blessings of it, but they fell out. It says people who fall out of the covenant like this, you're not going to be able to restore. Okay? Um, let me just suggest this. Is this a long, uh, sorry, that's a lot of text. Nothing about the context here suggests that falling away implies departure from new covenant membership. Again, that's what I mean. You have to Judaize the New Testament. Does anyone see anything about the covenant in this passage? Does, does the word covenant even show up here? It doesn't. What you have to do is say, oh, yeah, that's... That's just because we're, we're bringing this in from the Old Testament. This is an Old Testament import to explain this passage. Um, you, uh, um, it, it's, it's not even mentioned here. Um, moreover, as a, people who hold to eternal security or perseverance of the saints, our pedo-baptistic friends still have to account for someone falling away that is so described. Um, they could describe it as someone whose fall was not actually from salvation, someone who was closely associated with church life, but was never truly repentant, both which uh, Baptists have both of those explanations because they don't require any, saying anything about a covenant, or an effective warning, which is the view that I'm going to take, but we're gonna, I'm going to explain that a little bit more later. It describes a believer, and it describes someone falling away. Um, that, because I think that's the most honest way to read the passage. But it doesn't imply that believers can fall away because the warnings are a means that God uses to preserve His people like the warning labels on poison are means by which people are protected from drinking it. Okay, I'll get back to that, and I'll give biblical examples of that later. But the idea is, you look at our, our, our Reformed Paedo-Baptistic friends don't have any other way to square warnings in Scripture to believers. How could you, why would you, you look at all the literature. The, the explanation is, well, warning to people because they're in the, you're warning people who are in the covenant because they can fall away from it, and that's what the warnings are for. In the many cases, these are warnings that are actually to people who are believers. Um, 
Let's look at the second one real quick. Oh, no, we know what? I don't want to rush the second one. Let me just say that on this second interpretation here, uh, it's really the third interpretation, someone who is never truly repentant, um, Baptists can accommodate the falling away in light of visible participation in the local church without requiring the import of a mixed covenantal framework. So the Baptists, like Wayne Grudem has the most famous essay defending this view. Okay, he says, he goes through all these examples of, you know, oh, a tasting doesn't mean eating and all the rest, and this person is not a believer. Not the view I hold. The person in Hebrews 6 is not, is being described not a believer. It says, well, what is it, what is he, what is he, what does it mean then? Well, it means that he was participating in the life of the church. That's what it means. And it, and that is essentially the category the Baptist can use that it, the local, the category of local church and the gathering, which is just straight out of the New Testament, to describe these things without having to import the idea of the covenant community of falling away. Okay? You'll say, well, that person falls away from participation with the people of God. People falls away from hearing the gospel proclaimed, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, we are at time. I need to close. I know that was a lot of material. I know that was a lot of material. I know I probably spoke in a droning voice as I tried to rapidly proceed through it. Um, but I want to. I want to get this. I want to get through this. I don't want it to take a ton, you know weeks and weeks to do this. But I want to be thorough too, because if I'm not, it defeats the whole purpose of why I kind of have this do this once, kind of be done forever, and then move on. And when people ask me about it, I can say, hey, go back and look at this instead of having to to redo this. So appreciate your time. Hope that's helpful. Please come ask me any questions you have, and let's pray. Um, God, thank thank you for being with us. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for calling people out of darkness into light. And pray that um, you would help us think carefully about these things and that you would be delighted in our worship in the coming hour. In the name of Jesus, amen.